Father God, we come before you this morning asking once again for a special anointing of your spirit upon our time because the study we come to once again is just so rich in lessons for us that it is needful that the spirit take that which is said in just this hour time and work it into our hearts, Father God, for all of eternity. The history of the Samaritan woman's dialogue with the Lord Jesus Christ, who became her Savior, is just like our study of uh, his dialogue with Nicodemus, the born-again chapter. It's one of the most instructive passages in the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, as we will learn this morning that Jesus Christ was no respecter of persons. Teach us how important that is in our witness for you, Lord, that we learn to witness to all manner of people. And thank you, Father, that Jesus, again, as we'll see this morning, was a barrier breaker. Uh, we thank you that he broke through the female-male barrier because uh, in, for his time, he, he just elevated women to a position that they had never had in the world before. And we thank you that he broke through the sex barrier. We thank you, Father, that he first revealed himself as the Messiah, the Christ, to a woman. What a revelation. And, Father, thank you that he broke through the social barriers, that he taught and revealed himself to all social classes, such as the, the rich and upper-class man that we saw um, a couple weeks ago with Nicodemus, a self-righteous religionist, as well as to the publicans and prostitutes, to the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and, and the Jews. Thank you that he was a social barrier breaker, and he was also, most importantly, he was a breaker of the barrier of sin, which separates all men from you, Father. And for that, we are indeed the most thankful. Now, Father, I just pray that you would guide and direct my words and thoughts so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and all of our hearts, Father, would be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight because we want them to give glory to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our text for this lesson, entitled Seeking Samaritan Sheep, comes from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42, and you can see our outline up here is going to consist of four major divisions. We're going to look at the Lord's delay at a Samaritan well. We're going to look at his dialogue with the Samaritan woman, although we won't finish with that this morning. We'll have to continue the dialogue section next week, and then also next week we will look at the disciples taught some soul-winning wisdom, part 3 and part 4, the Lord's delight in Sychar's whiteness. We'll begin, no introduction to this because there's so much territory to cover. Let's just begin by looking at verses 1 to 6, Christ's delay at a Samaritan well. <clears throat> Chapter 4 of John, it says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay. The Lord's tour in Judea. Remember the last time we saw the Lord, he was down in the Judean countryside baptizing people with the baptism of repentance unto, uh, and confession unto sin. Now, he wasn't baptizing anybody, as it tells us here in verse 2, but his disciples were baptizing. 
Well, apparently, according to John chapter 4, verse 1, his tour down in Judea had grown too successful to please the Pharisees, who were even at this early stage in our Lord's earthly ministry beginning to manifest their opposition to him. So the verse there tells us that the Pharisees were aware of the fact that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than who? John the Baptist. And this did not make the Pharisees very happy because John the Baptist was actually pretty popular. And now Jesus was even more popular than John. And, of course, their main problem was envy, was it not? Jealousy. All right, so that fact about the Pharisees being opposed to him, along with the fact that he now knew that John the Baptist had been arrested and imprisoned by Herod Antipas, this resulted in the Lord's withdrawal from Judea. Remember now, Judea is in the south of Israel, and Galilee is where? Up in, up in the north, okay? So he, he sees this as a sign from his heavenly father that it's time to leave Judea and go up into Galilee, where his extensive ministry will really blossom. This in Galilee is, of course, where he will grow in his popularity with the common people. Now, to travel from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, the Jewish people had a choice of taking two routes. They could either go the direct shorter route, which I have up here in that red pen, if you can see that. They could go straight from Judea through Samaria. Now, you remember, this is all Israel, but Israel consisted of different provinces. Between Judea and Galilee was the province of Samaria. So it would make the most sense to take the direct route and go from Galilee through the heart of Samaria up, I mean, from Judea, heart of Samaria up to Galilee. That was one route they could take. The other route they could take, I have in green here, they could go toward, from from Judea, they could go over toward Jericho, cross over the Jordan River, go through Perea and Decapolis to the south of the Sea of Galilee, cross back over the Jordan River, and then on into Galilee. Now, which route do you think most Jewish people took? The Right, exactly. The longer route, and especially religious rulers, like your rabbis, and your Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious rulers, would always take the longer route. And the reason for this is because they did not want to contaminate themselves with Samaritans, who they absolutely despised. And we will talk about why they despised them when we get into a little bit of a history lesson later on this morning. For reasons which date back to the divine council chambers of eternity past, the Lord Jesus, however, elected to take the direct route to Galilee, the red route, which went right through the heart of Samaria. You see, prejudice, racial prejudice, was not a problem with the creator of all mankind. Now, we see in verse 4, it says that he must needs go through Samaria. And the must of that statement was not a physical must, of course, because he could have taken the longer route. It was a spiritual must. It was a must based on the will of God, which had sent Christ to earth with a mission. There were sheep with hungry souls in Samaria, uh, in a particular village called Sychar. Sheep who would hear the good shepherd's voice 
and follow him. And that's why I have entitled our lesson, Seeking Samaritan Sheep. So the Lord took his small band of men and walked through the forbidden land until he came to the village of Sychar, which I don't know if you can see, but I've tried to put a little red dot. Sychar is really in the heart of Samaria. It was approximately 35 miles north of Jerusalem. Sychar was situated, we are told, in the passage I just read in verse 5, it was situated near to a piece of ground, a parcel of ground, which had been purchased by Jacob. Remember the patriarch Jacob? We studied his life last year. It was purchased by Jacob as a gift for his favorite son, who was Joseph. And you can read about that purchase. It said it cost him, um, ooh, I just went blank. 30, not 30 pieces of money, 100 pieces of money in Genesis 33:19 is when he bought that land for Joseph. It's interesting because Joseph, you know, none of the patriarchs ever really owned any land in the promised land, did they? The only piece of property Abraham ever purchased was um, um, Machpelah. Was that the name of it? Where they were buried. Where they were buried. And and, J- and Jacob bought this one little parcel of land near to Sychar in Samaria. And he gave it to Joseph, but did Joseph ever take possession of it? No, because where did Joseph die? He died in Egypt. But you know what? About 400 yards north of Jacob's well, which is where our story takes place, 400 yards north of Jacob's well, jo- Joseph's bones are buried. You can go there and see Joseph's tomb. So he never took possession of it during his life, but he is buried on that little parcel of ground. Now, also located on that particular piece of land was and is yet today a well, a 105-foot well, which is seven and a half feet wide, which is a pretty big well, which was uh, known as Jacob's Well. It is still known as Jacob's Well. Has anybody been to see Jacob's Well? Have you? Several of you. I know when I went in 1985, they would not let us go there. We wanted to see Jacob's Well because this is one of the few places in Israel that you can go to and you know it is the authentic well where Jesus sat and talked to this Samaritan woman. And I really wanted to see this well, but our Jewish bus driver would not go into Samaria. Can you believe that? <laughs> be contaminated with the Samaritans so we couldn't we did not go also if you know anything about what's going on today Samaria even yet today is um, the Jews won't a lot of Jews won't go there because this is the West Bank and this is uh, a hotbed for the Palestinians a lot of terrorists living there so there's still a great deal of animosity between the people that live in Samaria and the Jews Um, So anyway, there was a lot of history, and I thought it was interesting. We hear about a lot of wells in Genesis, a lot of wells being dug by Abraham and especially by Isaac. Isaac was known for his wells. Jacob was known, I mean, Abraham was known for his altars. Isaac was known for his wells. But you know what? We never read one time about Jacob digging a well. We never read about it, but apparently he did because this was Jacob's well. So just thought I'd throw that in. All right, so the Lord Jesus was weary from his travels. He had traveled from the Judean countryside up 35 miles or so to Sychar by the time. Remember, all their travels were by foot. So by the time he and his disciples got there, he was tired. So he sat 
probably on the wall of the well while his disciples, now we didn't read this, I don't think, but his disciples we find out in verse 8 went into the nearby village of Sychar in order to buy some food. Christ's humanity is evidenced to us in these verses, therefore, by his thirst. I mean, by his uh, weariness, by the fact that he's tired. We also see his humanity evidenced in a minute by his thirst, because when the Samaritan woman comes along, he asks her for a drink of water. So we know that he's tired and he's thirsty, and he's also obviously hungry. That's why the disciples went into Sychar to get food for themselves and for him. So we see his humanity. As we get further into the text, we're also very clearly going to see his divinity by way of his message and also by way of what he reveals omnisciently to the Samaritan woman that he knows all about her. So we see his humanity and his divinity in the same passage. And this is something that we see quite often as we go through the Lord's life. For example, he was tired and so he went to sleep on a ship, a a fishing vessel while there was a storm going on and he was in the bottom of the boat sleeping like a baby. He was tired. That shows his humanity. But when his disciples woke him up, what did he do with just three words? Peace be still. Totally calmed the storm. We also see his humanity and his divinity in uh, the story of um, Lazarus. Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. But then, what did he do? Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man was raised back to life. So he was indeed the God-man. Now, an interesting fact to know is that the word sychar means, in the Hebrew, purchased. Jacob had purchased the part. Joseph, as I said, at a price of a hundred pieces of money. The gift of God mentioned in verse 10 of this passage, again, we haven't read that, but you see gift of God is mentioned, which Christ would offer to the Samaritan woman was the gift of salvation. You all, let's get that cleared right up front. The gift of God that he offers to her when he offers her his living water is he's speaking of the gift of salvation that he himself would purchase for her by way of his own shed blood. Now, what's interesting is that there are at least three gospel truths pictured by the Apostle John's inclusion of the fact that the village of Sychar was near to the parcel of ground that Jacob bought for his son Joseph. You know, we say, why would John bother to tell us that? that it was close to where Jacob bought this land for his son. Well, with everything in the scripture, there's always a reason. There are three ways where this account of this land given as a gift speaks to us of the gospel message. The first one is, just like the gospel message of salvation, the land was a gift. And if you will count, I think from John verse 5 all the way to verse 15 the words give given gave and gift are repeated I think a total of eight or nine times this is a chapter all about a gift giving a gift and as we said that gift is the gift of salvation Um, Jacob freely gave that gift of land to his son Joseph didn't he Like the gospel message, the gift may have been free to Joseph, but it cost the father. Jacob had to pay for it. 
Salvation may be free for the Samaritan woman who will accept that gift. And for you and I, it's totally free. It's a gift we just need to receive. But God had to pay for it. The father had to pay for it by giving his most precious possession, which was his son. And third, like the gospel message, the gift was given because of love. Jacob dearly loved Joseph, just as our heavenly father dearly loves us. Now, the well upon which Christ sat himself, uh, or sat, symbolized himself. There's just a whole lot of deep meaning in this whole account. The well on which he sat symbolized himself, while the water in the well symbolized the salvation that is found in him. It says in Isaiah 12:3, Therefore with joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. <clears throat> the wells of the Old Testament also symbolically foreshadowed Christ in his mediatory work because they are often, if you study the wells in the Old Testament, they're often a meeting place, they're seen as a meeting place between God and a sinner, just as we'll see in this story today. Christ is the one and only mediator between God and man. Just a lot of significance. Doing a study of Old Testament wells would, would be a good, rich study for you because it is such a picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, several thousand, well, about a little less than 2,000 years earlier from this account of the Samaritan woman meeting Jesus at the well, there was uh, another non-Jewish despairing woman named Hagar who met her Savior at a well. Do you remember that account of, of Hagar coming? You know, she was running away because she had been mistreated from, by her mistress, Sarah. And so she was running away. And the Lord met her and saved her at a well. She was an Egyptian, just like our lady today was non-Jewish. Well, she was sort of a half-breed, part Jewish and part Gentile. And then do you remember the account of her son, Ishmael, who was at the point of death? And he also was led to a well by God and saved. That was in Genesis 21. At other times in the Old Testament, a well became a place of prayer or a place of refuge where a man um, perhaps would make an oath to God, a vow to God. Remember David, King David, on one particular occasion when he was very, very thirsty, he called out and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem. I remember his mighty men took their lives in their hands in order to go and get him a drink from the well. And he wouldn't even drink it when they brought it back to him because of the great sacrifice. And so he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. But the water of the well of Bethlehem, again, is a prophetic picture in type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in John 4, it's interesting to notice that we have the well himself, the Lord Jesus, sitting on a well waiting for the arrival of one whom he would purchase with his own precious shed blood and death in a place called what? Purchased. A lot of significance in this story. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the delay at a Samaritan well. Let's move on now and look at the long dialogue that the Lord has with a sinful woman. This is our longest section, which we won't get through this morning, but we'll continue next week. Let's look at verses 7 to 26. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. 
Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into, unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Verse 11. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children as cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, pointing down to the water in Jacob's well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into what? Everlasting life. Verse 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and she would have pointed over to Mount Gerizim, which you can see from Jacob's well. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye, meaning ye Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye, meaning ye Samaritans, worship ye know not what. We, we Jews, know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And then verse 26 is so marvelous. First time Jesus revealed that he is the Christ, the Messiah to anyone. It was to a, an immoral Samaritan woman. He said, I that speak unto thee am he. This passage is so very, very rich. Well, as the Lord was sitting on Jacob's well, a Samaritan woman from Sychar approached the well to fetch some water. <clears throat> John, now the author of this gospel, always remember this. He always used Roman time, which meant that it was the sixth hour. Roman time is just like our time. It was six o'clock. It was six o'clock. It was 10 o'clock. It was 10 o'clock. So this was six o'clock. Now, extra-biblical sources tell us that there was an <clears throat> another well which was located much closer to the village of Sychar. However, this particular woman of this account traveled to the further well, the well called Jacob's Well, 
which was a mile round trip, was half a mile away from Sychar, so she'd have to travel the, <clears throat> the first half mile with her empty water pot, which they were big. Remember we talked about this when we talked about the water turning into wine at Cana? She wouldn't have had one quite that big, but they still carried large water pots. She'd carry that empty a half a mile to Jacob's well, and then she'd fill it, and she'd have to carry that heavy water pot back another half a mile back to Sychar. She went this extra distance to this further well in order to avoid the other women of Sychar who obviously went to the much closer well to fetch their water, and women always went the same time. So 6 o'clock was the hour that they went to get their well. She purposely went the further distance to avoid the other females of the village um, because, of course, they would shun her, and they would probably whisper, you know, loud enough so she could hear them talking about her, and, and they would taunt and sneer her, etc. So she went the further distance. When this low, lonely woman, therefore, with her water pot, approached the well, Jesus, now she would have seen him sitting on the well as she was approaching. Because from the well, you can even look over and see the village of Sychar. So he could have seen her approaching, and she would see, though, there's a man sitting on the well. wonder what that's all about. But anyhow, she would see from a distance that he was um, Jewish because he was probably dressed as a rabbi. He was a rabbi, meaning a master teacher. He was a teacher. Rabbi just means master. And so he would, would obvious, probably have been dressed in the dress of a master teacher. And she would have seen from a distance. And then as she got closer, she probably saw from his features that he was Jewish. So she would not have expected him to say anything to her at all. You know, maybe even just turn his back while she fetched her water. However, when he spoke to her and said, give me a drink, she must have really been shocked. Must have really been surprised. Now, before we get into why she would have been shocked, it is amazing, and I just want to throw this in, to think about Jesus Christ, who is the creator of the entire universe. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that wasn't made. He is the creator of the universe, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. To think of him sitting on a well asking for a drink of water. Now, he is the one who created all the lakes, all the rivers, all the streams, all the creeks, all the oceans of this entire world. He is the creator of water itself. He was, in fact, the same one who had made <clears throat> water miraculously flow from a rock when Moses struck it. <clears throat> he, could have, he could have just struck any rock there on the ground and had water flow out of it. I mean, he's thirsty. If he wanted to satisfy his thirst, that would have been easy for him. He was the same one who Satan knew could easily have turned stones into bread. So couldn't he have turned something into water if he wanted to? He was also the same one who had turned water into wine. Yet with all of his creative omnipotence, there he was sitting on a well asking for a drink of water. So... This points out the repeated truth that Jesus Christ never performed a miracle in order to meet his own needs. Never. He never performed a miracle for himself. He could have easily commanded, now that was a deep well, he could have commanded the water to rise up to the top of that well where, so he could dip his hands into it and then drink from the water if he wanted to quench his own thirst that way. <clears throat> but he came to earth not only to redeem us, but he came to experience what we in our human bodies also experience. That's why he, he, he knows he, he's our high priest who can empathize with the feelings of our 
infirmities. He knows what it feels like to be tired. He knows what it feels like to weep at the, at the graveside of a loved one. He knows what it's like to be thirsty and to be hungry. Part of his being human was so that he could understand what it feels like for you and I. So he asked the woman for a drink of water, but his own thirst was not his primary concern, was it? And we will definitely see that. On her approach to the well, as I said, the woman would have immediately recognized that Jesus was Jewish and not Samaritan. And also, of course, she would have seen that he was a man. And because of this, all of these things, she was very, very surprised that he even spoke to her, much less that he asked her to uh, allow him to drink from her vessel. In order to get a drink, you know, she'd have to, to dip her bucket or her... Yeah, she must have had some kind of bucket that she would lower down in there and then raise it up and then put it into her pot. She must have had some kind of a drinking vessel with her. And uh, he, in order to drink, he needed to drink, use her drinking vessel. And that really surprised her, but we'll get to that in a little bit, why that would so much surprise her. What we need to understand with regard to her shock is something more about the culture in that day. We need to see that his words to her were a result of some cultural situations, which we're going to refer to as the sex barrier, the social barrier, and the Samaritan barrier. We'll begin with the sex barrier. The unwritten law of first century Israel was that Jewish men did not publicly speak to women. And this was even more expected for religious, the religious rulers of Israel, the Jewish rabbis and the scribes and the priests and the Sadducees, Pharisees, etc. It was recorded that rabbis were not even to speak to their wives in a public setting, you know, out in the public, they weren't to speak to their wives. They weren't to speak to their daughters, and they weren't to speak to their sisters, but I thought it was very interesting that provision was made that they could speak to their mothers. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So if mama, if mama walked by, the rabbi could say, Hi, Mom. <laughs> that was allowed. <laughs> so by, you see, by initiating a conversation with this woman at the well, Jesus, first of all, broke through the sex barrier of the Jewish culture in which he lived. He was... A rabbi, and he should not have been speaking to a woman out in a public setting. Not only did he break through the male-female barrier by speaking to her, but he also broke, broke through the social barrier. He was a master teacher. He was called rabbi. He was considered a rabbi. And as I just mentioned, rabbis simply did not hold conversations with women in public places, much less with immoral women. In other words, moral people did not at all speak with immoral people. And that's why Simon the Pharisee was abhorred when Jesus let that immoral woman wipe his feet with her tears and her, and her long hair. You know, you don't, you don't let an immoral person do that. You don't, don't let them touch you. You don't speak to them, period. So the Lord broke through the social barrier by talking to the Samaritan woman, who, of course, he knew was an immoral woman. We know that because he reveals to her her immoral situation. The third man-made barrier through which the Lord broke by speaking to the woman at the well was what we call the Samaritan barrier or the racial barrier. The woman's response to his request for a drink of water 
was one of surprise that he, a Jew, would ask her, a Samaritan, for a drink. Because, and what does she say in verse 9? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There was great racial uh, bitterness and animosity and hatred which had originated centuries earlier between the Samaritans and the Jews. And now we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson to explain why, how this hatred came about. Back 720 years before Christ, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. Remember, the southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The ten tribes in the northern kingdom were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. This was a punishment from God because they had turned to idol worship. And so he let Sargon II march into the northern kingdom and take the Jewish people away. And they were scattered throughout the world because the, the Assyrians had a policy which was known as population redistribution. Sargon of Assyria, what he would do is he would bring in foreign heathen settlers to um, intermingle with the people of a newly conquered area. So when the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom, they carried off all the, um, the regular Jewish people. And the only ones they left there were the poorest and the weakest of the Jews. And they left them there so that they could work for the Assyrians and till their, land, their fields. It's kind of almost like slaves. But then they would bring in peoples from all the other air, conquered places and bring them into a newly conquered place so that they would amalgamate with the, the people they had left there, the weaker, poorer Jews. So they brought in people from other areas, and they brought them in so that they would assimilate their subjects. And this was really a wise policy because in doing this, which would be, of course, through intermarriage, they would eventually rid those people of any nationalistic feelings that they once had for their own land. You know, eventually they would just all be one people and they wouldn't feel patriotic toward Israel anymore. And this was exactly what happened then with the poorer, lower class Jews who were left in Israel after the Assyrian invasion. They intermingled with the heathen peoples brought in by the Assyrians from all their other conquered areas. And what do you think the heathens quickly did? They introduced their new Jewish neighbors to their many false gods and their pagan forms of worship. This, in turn, caused the true God, and remember, these are Jewish people, and they're being in, they already had a problem with idolatry, that's why all their, the other Jews were carried off into captivity, and now they're being introduced to even more pagan gods, and they're starting to get into that thing with worshiping some of them. And so this made God very angry, and he brought lions in to devour the people. Remember, did we talk a couple weeks ago when we talked about Nicodemus, how the Lord had brought snakes in to bite the people. And that got the Israelites' attention. Well, now these lions, I mean, you don't want to be devoured by a lion. So that got their attention. And um, what they did, they knew this was a result of God's latest anger on them. And so they went to Sargon II, the emperor of the Assyrian Empire, and they begged him to send them some Jewish priests to teach them once again about the true God. They had not forgotten about Jehovah God. They just didn't remember anymore how to worship him. So they said, please send us some priests 
so that we can again worship our God. And I can't believe this, but he consented to that request, but he only sent them one priest, one lonely priest. But that one Jewish priest's teaching regarding the worship of the true God eventually won out over the worship of pagan gods, but nonetheless, Judaism lost its purity. With, because of their adulterous affair with pagan gods that had tainted their worship of the true God. And they did a, a bunch of things that were wrong. For example, one major thing is that they, um, we'll talk about some of the other things, but one that just stands out in my mind now is that they re- disregarded all the other books of the Old Testament except for the books of Moses. So the Samaritans to this day only believe in the first five books of the Bible. <clears throat> anyway, so their their worship, they were worshiping the true God, but their their whole worship system had lost its purity. And unfortunately, other, the other bad thing they did was they did intermarry with the pagan peoples that had been brought into that northern kingdom. And eventually, these mixed-blooded, they were part Jewish, part Gentile, these mixed-blooded, religiously confused people were called Samaritans. And the name Samaritan comes from Samaria, which was the former capital of the northern kingdom. And as I said, this is, there are modern-day Samaritans still in Israel. And uh, this is a real photograph of some of them standing there dressed in their, in their white outfits. Now, when Zerubbabel returned to Jerusalem, you know, the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians. And then... That was 722 B.C. And then around 586 B.C., God had finally had it also with the southern kingdom because they also were beginning to turn to idol worship. And so they were carried off by King Nebuchadnezzar and taken to where? To Babylon for 70 years. Well, when finally their 70 years were over and Zerubbabel came back to Jerusalem, the Samaritans attempted to make an alliance with these returning Jews and with Zerubbabel. However, he refused to allow them to worship with the returning Jews from Babylon because of, not only because of the fact that they had intermarried with with heathens, but also because of their impure system of worship. And you can read about this in Ezra chapter 4. This situation, of course, brought about continuing opposition between the Samaritans and the returned Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah. And then a hundred years later, Nehemiah also refused to cooperate with the Samaritans who wanted to be allowed to worship with the Jews in Jerusalem. And he refused. And the result of that was that the Samaritans established their own center of worship by building their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which you can see from Jacob's Well and from the village of Sychar. It was in the province of Samaria. They claimed, now they they said, well, since the Jews won't let us worship in Jerusalem in their temple, and there was good reason for that. God was protecting the, the purity of the worship system and of the Jewish bloodline. So there was reason why Zerubbabel and Nehemiah refused to join in with the Samaritans. But anyway, um, they, in order to justify their temple on Mount Gerizim, they changed the scripture. <laughs> they, they not only changed some places where it says Jerusalem to Mount Gerizim, but they also said that it, it was on Mount Gerizim where Abraham offered Isaac. And they said that it was on, on Mount Gerizim where Melchizedek, 
you know, the great, high, the high priest of the Most High God, um, where he met with Abraham. And they said that it was on Mount Gerizim that Moses built his first altar after live, leaving, leading Israel out of Egypt. So they, and there's no scriptural proof for any of this stuff, but they, they made it up in order to justify their temple there. Then, closer to the time of Christ, in 108 B.C., the time of the Jewish Maccabees, remember this is between Malachi and Matthew, the intertestamental period, the Hasmonean ruler John Hyrcanus increased Samaritan hostility toward the Jews by destroying that temple on Mount Gerizim. He totally destroyed their temple. However, they continued to worship there anyway, even without a temple. But doing that greatly increased the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. They became increasingly bitter toward each other until by the time of Christ, most Jews would not even think of talking to a Samaritan, much less asking one for a favor. They believed, actually, that any association with a Samaritan would render them ceremonially unclean, and that's why they went that longer route to avoid any contact with Samaritans. Furthermore, they even believed that all Samaritan women were were um, per, in a perpetual state of ceremonial uncleanliness. So do you? See, I want you to see, I know that might have been really tedious to go through that history, but I want you to see the barrier that Jesus broke by asking this woman, this Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. And also, I think maybe it'll give you a, a better perspective on the Lord's parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the, the, the priest walked right by that man who had been beaten and robbed and, and left to die on the road to Jericho. The, the priest and the Levite, it was a Jewish man. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. <clears throat> and his own people walked right by him, didn't want to have anything to do with him. But who stopped and took care of him, you know, the second mile? They just went beyond what anyone would expect. Even took him to an inn and paid for, paid for it, said, I'll come back and take care of any other bill that... It was the Samaritan, a good Samaritan, and who is he a picture of? The barrier breaker himself, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I thought, well, we'll get to that in a minute. All right, the, third, the, third, the next thing that Christ deals with is the sin barrier. <clears throat> um, by the way, I, I thought of a name for that last barrier when he asks her, Oh, I didn't get to, I didn't talk about that. Okay, when the Samaritan woman said to, to uh, Jesus, she said, you know, why do you speak to me? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's in verse 9. The literal Greek word, I forgot to tell you this, for dealings is to use vessels together. That's the literal Greek meaning of dealings. So what she was really shocked about was not only that a Jew was talking to her, but he was requesting a drink from her own drinking vessel. The Jewish rabbis stated in their laws, now not God's law, but in their laws, they stated that Jews and Samaritans were absolutely not to use the same drinking vessels. That was a big no-no. <clears throat> and then again, that's what reminded me of the uh, Good Samaritan, because it doesn't say that he did this, but you know he did, that he must have gone over to his donkey and taken out his drinking vessel and poured some water and given it to that man who had been robbed and beaten. So the Samaritan used the same drinking vessel with the Jewish man lying there dying. And uh, so I called this, I didn't have this on your notes, but I thought, well, this would, we could call the, um, the barrier of sipping. The, the, he, he broke the sipping-sharing barrier. 
by asking a request for a drink of water from her drinking vessel. Okay, now we're going to talk about dealing with the sin barrier. The Lord's response to the Samaritan woman's implication that she could not possibly let him drink from her vessel because this wasn't heard of was this. And this is found in verse 10. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee what? Living water. Now, notice that the Lord did not address the woman's remark. She had said, you know, how is it you speak to me when Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? He didn't address her remark. Instead, he directed her attention to God and to deep spiritual matters. She was thinking physically, but he wanted her to start thinking what? Spiritually, exactly. The, The situation at the well had begun with Jesus as the thirsty one. And it was the woman who had the means to alleviate his thirst, right? I mean, she's the one who had the supply. She had the the means to get the water out of the well. But here, all of a sudden in verse 10, the Lord indicated that it was the woman that had the thirst. And he has the supply. You see, Jesus was very adept at doing this. Of course, he's God. But we we really can learn from how he took a physical conversation and very skillfully turned it to the spiritual realm. In one statement, the Lord Jesus told the Samaritan woman everything she needed to know about salvation. Think about this. He told her what it is. It's a gift of God. He told her, and he also called it spiritual living water. He told her who controlled it himself, and he told her how to get it. Ask ask of him then in the woman's next response verse 11 we see that Jesus had increased in her estimation because remember back in verse 9 her in her first statement to him he was merely a Jew he was a Jew why is it that you you know how is it that you a Jew but now in her second statement in verse 11 um, she called him sir so you see he's beginning to increase in her estimation because sir is a term of respect she was still thinking in physical terms although she was she must have been beginning to get somewhat of an idea that he meant something deeper because of the fact that he mentioned god and and living water so she must have known he was talking about something different but she was still thinking in physical terms when she said sir thou hast nothing to draw with and the well is deep From whence then hast thou that living water? She was implying that it would take a supernatural work to even draw water out of Jacob's deep well without something with which to draw it, much less for him to draw living water out of some kind of heavenly well or some kind of magical well or whatever he was talking about when he said living water. The woman knew that the water she daily drew out of Jacob's well had been Jacob's gift to his children. And we know this from her question to the Lord in verse 12. She said, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? You see, the Samaritans also claimed Jacob as their father because they were part Jewish. In effect, she was asking Jesus, Are you saying that you are greater than the patriarch Jacob? And that you can offer a greater gift of water than what he provided 
for us, you know, d digging this well several thousand years ago. This, this has been a source of water for his offspring all of these years. You know, she, her question here was obviously implying that she did not think that Jesus was poss could possibly be greater than Jacob, the patriarch, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel and from which the 12 tribes of Israel came, you know. And she was even expecting him to say, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that at all. I don't mean I'm greater than Jacob. So it must have really, again, surprised her when he essentially answered her by saying, um, yes, I am greater than the great patriarch Jacob because he offered a, Jesus offered a permanently satisfying water. Those who drank from Jacob's well, such as herself, had to drink from it repeatedly, just like you and I. When we get physically thirsty, we have to go back to the faucet and drink again, right? Or the refrigerator and get some more orange juice or whatever it is you drink. We, you know, our, our physical thirst has to constantly be satisfied. So Jacob's well was only, it only satisfied thirst temporarily. But his was permanent. He literally said, Whosoever drinketh of this water, pointing down to Jacob's water, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him, which is the spiritual living water of eternal life, shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him be, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. <clears throat> By the way, while I'm thinking of it, because I may forget, will you flip real quickly over to John chapter 7? The Lord often talked about water as eternal life. Just look in verse 7, verse 37, where he said, um, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Verse 38, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. If you can real flip fast flip over to uh, Revelation chapter 22, I want to tell, show you the last thing Jesus says. To man, the last invitation he gives to man in the recorded word of God has to do with the same thing. Look in Revelation 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say what? Come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Water of life, really. Again, all right, go back to John chapter 4. The living water that he is speaking of, of course, here is uh, eternal life. <clears throat> all right, in, in his response to the woman, the Lord again was offering her an opportunity to drink from his living water so that she would never thirst again. He was attempting to appeal to the inner thirst of her soul. The Lord, of course, was offering her salvation. He was telling her that what regular water could do to parch dry lips, his living water could do to a dry, parched soul. He was again using the physical, you know, the well and the water, to illustrate the spiritual. And that's what we see he does throughout his earthly ministry, always using the physical, something you and I can identify with, and using it to teach us spiritual principles. The water that this world offers can only give men temporary satisfaction. It's a physical satisfaction, which only quenches our thirst for a short time. But what he can offer us is of such a different type and quality that it satisfies the inner thirst of our 
souls for all of eternity. He said that the one who drinks from his water shall never thirst again. And I don't think that this is in your books, but the, the never thirst shall never thirst there is given in the Greek. It's called an absolute double negative. Absolute double negative. It's also used in such verses as John 10:28, where the Lord said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's given in the double absolute negative. So literally in the Greek, it says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never, no, never perish. Just like here, he is saying to the woman, um, I shall give him the water. I shall give him. He shall never, no, never thirst. I mean, it's so positive. So what it's really teaching you and I is that once a person is truly saved, truly born again, genuinely comes to Christ and asks for his forgiveness and accepts his death on the cross for her sins, his sins, that person can never, ever spiritually thirst again for eternal life because he or she has it. And they shall never, no, never, no, never perish It's so emphasized in the Greek that there can be no doubt about it. The eternal security of the believer. I wanted to point that out to you. All right. As of yet, the woman was still not catching on. She was at this point thinking in terms of some kind of magical water. And there are four things about which she was still in error. First of all, she was blinded to the person of Christ. She saw him only as a Jew. You know, possibly a rabbi based on the way he was dressed, um, because she did speak to him with respect by calling him sir, but still she did not see his veiled glory. She did not see him as who he really is at this point. Secondly, she was blinded by physical cares. She was preoccupied with this world, you know, the, this physical, material wor- world, as is evidenced by her response in verse 15. She said, um, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. You see, she was merely thinking of her daily burden of having to go that mile trip out to the well and then, you know, return with that heavy water pot. She says, and maybe she was even jokingly, this woman had spunk. I mean, she was... She was not quiet. And Nicodemus, we didn't hear nearly as much from him as we do from this woman. She's rather talkative. (laughs) Typical woman, right? But uh, she might have even been joking with him when she asked for his, you know, oh, okay, let me have your magic water because then I won't have to make this trip back and forth every day. But at least, whatever her mode, whatever she meant, at least she was asking for it, which was definitely a step in the right direction. She was seeing his water, whatever it was, she was seeing it as desirable. Well, she was also blinded to his power. She was limiting Christ to the use of his means, you know, supposing that he could not provide her with this living water, whatever it was, unless he had something with which to draw it out. Also, she didn't think, you know, she was limiting him in his power by, she didn't, there was no way in her wildest imagination that she thought he could possibly be greater than Jacob, the patriarch Jacob. Most significantly, the woman was blinded to the danger, the peril of her own spiritual condition. She was so preoccupied with thinking about the depth of the physical well there and how in the world he could get water out of it, she didn't stop to realize how deep was the need in her own soul. 
She needed to realize her own desperate spiritual need for Christ's living water. And in order to do this, she had to cross over the sin barrier. You see, the Lord himself had been the one who had dealt with the first three barriers, right? He's the one that dealt with the, um, here it is. He had dealt with the sex barrier. He's the one that crossed over that. He crossed over the social barrier. He even disregarded the Samaritan barrier. But the woman had to deal with the sin barrier. She herself had to do that. But he would help her along in it. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ does not give eternal life without first dealing with the problem of sin in our lives. The minute that this Samaritan woman revealed her willingness to accept the gift of his living water, even though she didn't understand what really what he was talking about, she said, okay, give me this water. The Lord put his finger on the thing that was causing her real inner thirst, and that was her sin. He said to her, go, call thy husband and come hither. That's in verse 16. And basically what he was saying to her is, if you truly desire to have my water of life, you must allow me to cut out the malignant, cancerous growth of sin in your life. You see, woman, it is your unconfessed sin and it is your unrepentant heart, which is making it impossible for you at this point to really understand me and to receive this free gift of of eternal life that I am offering you. Your unconfessed sin, your unrepentant heart is your sentence of death, and you must deal with it first. By way of the Lord's encounter with this Samaritan woman, we are taught an important Bible principle, which is this. It is not enough to simply desire to have eternal life. You know, you can go out in the world, you can go out today, and anybody you meet on the street or in the stores, ask them, would you like to have eternal life? Do you think you'd get many that would say no? It's not enough just to desire to have eternal life. There are two things that the woman and any, anybody who wants, really wants to receive eternal life, two things that they have to deal with. Two things this woman had to deal with before she could come to God through Jesus Christ. First of all, she had to recognize and acknowledge her own sin. Secondly, she had to know and turn to Christ as her Savior from sin. And oftentimes, this is the very part of the salvation process with which people are so unwilling to deal. I mean, you can go out there and say, would you like to receive eternal life? And everybody will say yes. But if you start saying, well, did you know that you're a sinner, that all have sinned? And, you know, maybe point out something about their lives, what you know, very graciously and meekly. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget the man that I met in High Point that um, I was witnessing to, and I told him, you know, that he was a sinner. And I, I said, I'm a sinner. You know, we're all sinners. Oh, no, he was not a sinner. And yet he had just told me he was living with this woman. <laughs> and he said he never had sinned in his life. I just, it just, I couldn't believe it. Never sinned in his life. And I was thought, well, you know, you're awfully proud about that, and pride is a sin. <laughs> Uh, But anyway, people don't like to admit their sin or their need for the Savior, while many others are not willing to repent and turn from their sin. That's another big issue. You know, turn. They might be willing to admit they're a sinner, but turn from my sin? Forget it. So the Lord's words, go, call thy husband and come hither, directly addressed her sin. In using the word go, 
he spoke to her conscience. What he was saying to her was, go and deal with the sin in your life. And that sin he knew had to deal with a quote-unquote husband who wasn't really her husband at all. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Then he went on and said, and come hither. Go and deal with your sin. There he's talking to her conscience. And then he says, and come hither. And in that, he was speaking to her heart. In effect, he was saying, when you have gone and when you have dealt with this sin in your life and repented of it, then you come back here to me for the cleansing and the forgiveness of the living water which I can give to you. Then the woman proceeded to very honestly and openly confess to the Lord that she did not have a husband. You know, she was very honest about this, to which he responded, very good. You know, you passed that little test. He said, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had, how many? Five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that thou, in that saidest thou truly. The husband of which Jesus spoke in verse 16 and again in verse 18 was actually somebody else's husband. Not her husband, but somebody else's husband. And this you don't see so much in the English. Well, you do where he says he is not thy husband. But in the Greek, it is definite. Not thy husband, he's somebody else's husband. So she not only had had five husbands, but now she was engaged in an adulterous relationship with somebody else's husband. So she was indeed an immoral woman. Don't you wonder what happened to those first five husbands? I don't know if this woman was a nagging woman or what. You know, if these men abused her and just used her and on they went, or if she poisoned them and they all died. (laughs) Maybe she got bored with them, yeah. She was looking to fill that void. You know, she was looking for joy, but she and she was looking in men to fulfill it. You know, guess what? I got news for you. I've been married... How many years? Going on 29 years. A man will never fulfill the void in your life. I mean, they'll to a degree, they can make you very happy and companion, but they can't fill the void that only God can fill. So don't ever look to your husband, or to, if you're not married, to one that you would like to have, <laughs> to fulfill all your needs, because they can't. Just like we can't fulfill all their needs. All right, he was, Jesus was dealing, um, revealing here his deity through his omniscience. You see, he was really telling her that he was God. Because who but God himself could know all these intimate things about a woman he had never met before. Who else had he done this with already? Nathaniel, right. Nathaniel, he had shown Nathaniel that he was omniscient, all-knowing God, because uh, he said, here's an Israelite in whom is no guile. I saw you when you were under a fig tree. I know all about you. I knew what you were thinking about, meditating on, etc. And now he's essentially telling this woman that he also, uh, that he is God. It says in Jeremiah 16, 17, this is God speaking, for mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from my eyes. Can God see everything in our lives? Does he see even into those darkest, secretest closets that we think we're keeping from everybody else? God can. Not only, you see, does Jesus reveal to the woman that he knows all about her, but he also reveals to her and to you and I that he, also, that he keeps an account. <laughs> he knew how many husbands she had had, and he knew about the situation. So he not only knows, he keeps accounts. He keeps records. It's interesting.
to notice that the woman had a total of how many men in her life? Six. Okay, six is the biblical number for what? Man. It's the number for flesh. It's the number for the carnal man. The Samaritan woman to this point in her life had lived totally in the flesh. A carnal woman. Not only had she had six men, but it was what time? The sixth hour. Does the Holy Spirit inspire anybody, any of the men writing the word of God, to throw something in inconsequentially for, for no reason? Like the parcel of ground that Jacob bought for Joseph. No, there was no, that, that was every, there's no coincidences. So it was the sixth hour for the woman. To this point in the woman's life, just like the six empty water pots over in John chapter 2, to this point her life had been empty and devoid of any joy. Now, however, as it's going on the seventh hour, and she had just met the seventh man in her life, things were going to change because he was about to fill her to the very brim with his living water. And the joy that we will see she experiences immediately is, I hope, the joy that you all have experienced. Amen. I know I did when I met the seventh man in my life, meaning <laughs> the, the perfect man. That sounded kind of bad. <laughs> oh, he fills you until your cup is overflowing. Mm. If you've lost the joy of your salvation, pray and ask the Lord, restore thou the joy of my salvation. Oh, the woman immediately recognized <clears throat> that what Christ had told her about herself was not natural perception. I mean, he knew more than the natural man. Even though she was now astonished enough by his insight to refer to him as a what? A prophet. Now in verse 19 she says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Is the woman growing? <laughs> yes, she had gone from just seeing him as a Jew to then showing some respect by calling him sir. And now she says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. You know, she's going from darkness to light, just like Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus, we see him three times. The woman got it. You know what? The woman got it a whole lot faster than the man. <laughs> she gets it right away, you know. We see this. But Nicodemus, it takes him three times. John has to tell us about Nicodemus before he comes into the light. But even though she's growing, all right, in her perception, still she has not arrived. She still doesn't know who, really who he is. Her understanding of him, however, was definitely going the right direction. By stating that she perceived him to be a prophet, what she was really doing was admitting that what he had said about her was correct. You know, he was, uh, she, she wasn't denying it. In essence, she was saying, you're right. Yes, you are right. You know all about me. You do, you're right. I have had five husbands. I am living with the sixth one. And so, since you know this about me, you must be a prophet. Finally, the woman clearly understood that Jesus was speaking of spiritual things. She also had been brought face to face with her own sin. But, as with many people when you are witnessing to them, when you touch on the sore spot of their sin, they will do something which is what the woman did. They will revert to 
diversion. They want to evade that discussion about their sin. And so, like she did, they will purposely shrink back from discussing something that makes them uncomfortable. She tried to steer the discussion onto something rather irrelevant. When you are soul witnessing, the individual to whom you are speaking may frequently attempt to divert you. And we've talked about this before when Philip was talking, was witnessing to Nathaniel. They may try to get you on some tangent subject that has nothing to do really with accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They may ask you who Cain married or some such foolishness. And uh, that's what this Samaritan woman did in essence because as soon as the Lord touched upon the sore spot of her sin, she said this, our fathers, <laughs> speaking of her Samaritan fathers, worshipped in this mountain. And as I said, she would point over to Mount Gerizim, and ye, meaning you Jewish people, say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, what in the world did that have to do with her living with the sixth man? I mean, not really a whole lot, but maybe her thinking was, apparently her thinking was something like this. Since this man knows all about me, he must be a prophet of God. And so, if so, he can settle this issue which has divided we Samaritans from the Jews for so many centuries. He can tell me where the right place to worship is. Whether consciously or unconsciously, she was changing the subject. It was just too painful for her to talk about her wrong past decisions and her adulterous relationship at the, at the current time. However, in mentioning worship, she gave an indication that she sensed her sin and the need to take care of her sin by truly worshiping God. She also, you know, she mentions worshiping God. But then her mind saying, where, where would I worship him? There was this big centuries-long disagreement between her people and the Jews about where God's presence really was. Where could a person truly meet God? Was that place Mount Gerizim, or was it, as the Jews said, in the temple in Jerusalem? Since she perceived that Jesus was a prophet, a man who was in touch with God, a man who had pierced her conscience with her need to worship God and to make sacrifice for her sin, perhaps he could direct her to the right place to meet with God. So maybe that was her thinking. Could he direct her to the right place to meet with God? <laughs> Little did she know she was already meeting face to face with God. Well, in his answer to her question regarding the correct place of worship, the Lord Jesus taught the Samaritan woman and all future readers of John's Gospel some very, very profound truths. But we will have to save those <laughs> for next week. We will pick up with this in our lesson, Lord willing, next week. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that once again <clears throat> you have given us such a rich passage of Scripture to study. Thank you, Father, for our salvation. Oh, may we never, ever take for granted that at one point in time, I pray that this is true, you have offered all of us the living water of life. Well, I know you did even this morning through this lesson. Thank you, Lord, that, that um, you offered me once, 33 years ago, the living water of life. And thank you that this water, which gives eternal life, is for any man, any woman. Because you said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. The condition, Father, must be that we thirst. So, Lord, I would just beg of you and pray that if there is one woman in this room 
who has never recognized her own inner thirst, her need for you, that void that needs to be filled and only you can fill. I pray, Lord, that you would cause a terrific, unbearable thirst in her heart and soul until she does ask you and beg of you for that living water that only you can give. Of course, acknowledging that she is a sinner in need of the Savior. And Father, thank you that we can learn by your son's example in this passage how to deal with all kinds of people as we go out in the world and are witnesses for you, how to meet them where they are spiritually, how to turn a conversation from the physical realm to the spiritual realm without offending with being gracious and and understanding and humble, how to show a person their inner need for a Savior, and then how to introduce them to the source of living water who alone can take away the penalty of sin because he alone paid in full that penalty of sin. Father, we love you. I pray that every woman here truly does know you. If there be a doubt, please, I pray she would talk to her leader or come speak to me this very day. Lord, I pray that you will use every woman here this week to be your light and your salt as she goes about her daily business. And Lord, we just love you. Thank you so much for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did die in our place. We ask now that you return all of us safely next week, for we pray in the blessed, wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen.